Thank you. You can just leave that microphone on my desk there. Appreciate it. Um, so, uh, don't take this the wrong way, friends, but um, you guys are kind of weird. Um, and you're actually getting more and more weird all the time. Don't know if you knew that. Here, here's why I say that. You know, there was a time in the past when doing what you're doing now, coming to church, was normal. It was mainstream. All the cool kids were doing it. And I still think you're cool kids. Um, but as you may know, we're living in a time right now where fewer and fewer people in our society are choosing to come to church. Uh, there was this big report that came out back in June, and it was uh, this kind of study of the attendance, uh, and and I I guess I should say membership patterns in the major denominations of the United States. And actually, I have a, um, I'll show this to you on the slide. Uh, I got a little little graph here. You got to love a sermon that starts with a graph, right? Like, we're off to a good start already. Um, so th- this is just, just looking at uh, nine of the more prominent Protestant denominations in the U.S. and their membership statistics over the last 30 years. And as you can see here, we won't go into all of this in a lot of detail, but, but seven of the nine represented here, you can see, have experienced significant decline. Uh, we're in the UMC here in the bottom corner. Uh, so we are looking at 31% decline in membership, and we are doing better than some of the others. There's a couple of exceptions uh, that have grown, but those are relatively small denominations. And so the overall picture, we don't have time to unpack all of this data here, but the overall picture right now is there's this, this shift going on where lots and lots of people are choosing to, to leave the church, to disengage, and, and not come back. So that makes you a little weird because you're still here doing this, and I'm weird too. So we're in this together. Uh, But as you can imagine, uh, church leaders are wringing their hands a lot right now. And and church leaders are are pulling their hair out. As you can see, I've already pulled out all of my hair. Uh, but, But trying to figure out, so... What's driving all of this? What is causing so many people to to walk away from the church? And there's a lot of theories and a lot of factors, and some of you may have theories, and you may have personal experience with with this yourself. Uh, But I read an article recently that that stood out to me as as being really compelling, and the the article was saying that perhaps one of the, the big drivers of church disengagement that we're seeing right now is this widespread sense of difference that people are starting to feel toward the church. That, that when people look at the church and people look at Christians, a lot of times their perception is that Christians aren't all that different from everybody else. And particularly in the realm of politics and as Christians engage in social issues, Christians often seem just as divisive as everybody else. Sometimes more so, right, that the, the, the Christians who are Democrats, they're out there parroting the same MSNBC talking points as everybody else, attacking Republicans like everybody else. The Christians who are Republicans, they're parroting the same Fox News talking points and tearing down the Democrats just like everybody else and the pro-life Christians and the pro-choice Christians and the progressive Christians and the moderate Christians and the conservatives. They, they all seem to want the same thing. They all want to win They all want power and control. They all seem intent on tearing the other side down just like everybody else. And this article was making the case compellingly, I thought, that when the world looks at Christians and and sees that, 
there's this feeling of indifference because people think, I don't see what difference church and, and following Jesus really makes, right? So, so why, why waste the time? Why waste the energy? Why waste a perfectly good Sunday morning doing something that, that doesn't seem to make any difference? When I read that, it was kind of like a, a gut punch for, for me, but it, it had the ring of truth to it. Now, uh, as we think about these dynamics, I think it's really easy for us to, to point the finger and blame Christians on the other side, right? It's those evangelical Trump supporters giving all of us a bad name, or it's those wacky liberal Christian Democrats giving all of us a bad name. Uh, but if you think this doesn't apply to you, let me scroll through your social media over the last few years and see some of the things that you've posted. Let me rewind some of the conversations and things that you have said about people on the other side. I think if we're honest, many of us would say that at least sometimes we can be guilty of being just as divisive in our political engagement as anybody else. And that may be normal out there in the world, but the problem is when we do that as Christians, we miss an incredible opportunity and we give people around us the impression that following Jesus doesn't really make that big of a difference. Now, here's why I bring all of this up today. Uh, as some of you know, we are wrapping up a sermon series that's called Not In It to Win It. Not In It to Win It. This is a sermon series about politics, which I know makes everybody nervous when we talk about politics in church. But as I've told you before, this is not a series about where we should stand on any particular issue. This is not a series about where, who we should affiliate with, which party, which candidate, whatever. This is about the how. How as Christians should we engage socially and politically? What should our tone be? What should our posture be? What should our approach be? Because what can sometimes happen to us is we get so obsessed with the issues and we get so focused on winning that, that we lose sight of the fact that our tone and our whole approach no longer reflects the love of Jesus. And that's not where we want to be. So if you missed the last couple of sermons in this series, I would encourage you to get on the podcast. Um, we got the link for you in the bulletin and, and catch up. So some of those conversations are going to frame what we're talking about today. But for today, what I want us to see is that division is the way of the world. It always has been. It always will be. The world is always going to give us reasons to be divided against each other. But as Christians, in the face of all those forces of division, Jesus calls us to do something divine. Let me say that again. In the face of division, Jesus calls us to do something divine. And we see that in this passage that PJ read for us in John 17. But before we dive in and start unpacking this scripture, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, we uh, thank you for the gift of your word that allows us to know your heart and your care for us and your guidance for us, God. We pray that you would come with your spirit now and open up our hearts and open us up to the ways that you're speaking love and comfort and, and assurance to us, but also open us to the ways that you're challenging us and pushing us to change and to be transformed, not just for our own sake, God, but for the sake of this world around us. And we pray all of this through your Son, who is the living word. Amen. Uh, so this passage in John 17, this is really incredible. And I think this is a lesser known passage and that's unfortunate. It's, it's really cool. So th this takes place at the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, the disciples, they, they don't know it's the Last Supper, right? They just think it's a, But Jesus knows it's the Last Supper. He knows that his time with the disciples 
is running short because in the hours ahead, he's going to get arrested, and then the next day he's going to be crucified, and he will be raised from the dead, and after Easter, he will have a little time with his disciples, but pretty soon he's going to ascend back into heaven, and then these disciples are going to have to go into the world and lead this movement that Jesus started. And he'll be with them spiritually, but, but no longer in the flesh. And so because time is short, Jesus uses the Last Supper as an opportunity to impress upon the disciples the most important things that he wants them to remember when he's no longer present physically with them. As humans, we, we do this uh, a, a lot. And in fact, I'll give you an example. Uh, my son started kindergarten last month. He's at a year-round school, so he's already started. And uh, on his first day of kindergarten, I was a nervous wreck. He was cool as a cucumber. I'm like freaking out. I'm driving him to school that morning. And without even thinking about it, I just started running through all these reminders of things I, I wanted him to remember. Like your, your lunchbox is in your backpack and, and your water bottle's in there too. And please don't lose your water bottle because that costs money. And if you get lost, find a grown-up. For goodness sakes, find a grown-up. They can help you. Uh, and, you know, I'm just running through all of this. Jesus is doing the same thing at the Last Supper, right? I'm going to be not with you anymore in the same way. Remember all of these things. So he goes on and on and on. If you read this section of John's gospel, it's like Jesus just doesn't stop talking for chapters on end. Well, finally, finally, Jesus gets to the end of everything that he wants to say. And we can imagine him kind of like sitting back in his chair. He's leaning back. He's watching these disciples around the table eating. You know, these disciples that he's poured himself into for three years. And as he's doing that, he starts to think about what these disciples are getting ready to do. That in the weeks ahead, they're going to go out into the world and they're going to lead this new thing called church. And as Jesus thinks about that, suddenly he starts to get really worried. He starts to get really concerned. There's, there's this anxiety that emerges because he's looking around the table and he sees like already, even with this relatively small group, that these disciples have a lot of differences and they have a lot of disagreements because this is, a, this is a diverse group. You know, they have different backgrounds, different life experiences. They had different political views. Did you know that? They had different hopes, different dreams. And so they already had differences and, and disagreements among them. And, and that's okay because Jesus values diversity. Jesus pursues diversity. And with diversity comes differences and disagreements. That's unavoidable. So that's not what Jesus is worried about in itself. But Jesus gets worried what if my church goes the way of the world? Like, what if these differences and disagreements harden into divisions, where suddenly my followers start to think that they're divided against each other? And then Jesus starts thinking beyond that, and he's like, you know, they're going to lead the church, and the church is going to grow. It's going to become even more diverse, which is a great thing. Jesus wants that. But that's going to bring even more differences and disagreements unavoidably. And so Jesus starts getting concerned. What, what if my followers in the future start, start thinking that they're divided against each other? And Jesus is concerned because he knows if the church goes the way of the world, then when the world looks at the church, the world's not going to see how following Jesus makes any difference. And, and he's getting ready to go lay down his life, Jesus is. So you can see why this would be a pretty serious concern in this moment, right? And Jesus does hear what I hope any of us would do when we're overwhelmed with worry, when we have anxieties, when we have fears, Jesus takes it to God the Father in prayer. And what's really incredible about this is, you know, the scripture tells us that Jesus would pray a lot. Jesus prayed constantly, but usually he would go off by himself to pray. 
And so we're not privy to the words that Jesus said to God the Father. But in this prayer, Jesus decides to say these words out loud where the disciples could hear them. And one of the disciples remembered what Jesus said, and later he wrote this down, and that's why we, act, we have access to this prayer uh, today. It's, it's an incredible prayer. John chapter 20, you should read the whole thing. Uh, we're going to, John 17, I should say, you should read the whole thing. We're going to start uh, looking at verse 20 today. Jesus begins this prayer by praying first for the disciples that were with him in the room, and then in verse 20, he, he switches gears a little bit here. Check this out. Uh, Jesus praying to God the Father. He says, I'm not praying only for them, that is these disciples with me at the Last Supper in this room, I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of their word. Who is that? Those who will believe in me because of their word. Well, Jesus is talking about us. Jesus is talking about you and me. Uh, Why do we, those of us that would say we believe in Jesus, why do we believe in Jesus? Well, in large part because Somebody told us about Jesus, right? And somebody told that person about Jesus. And somebody told that person about Jesus. And on and on, all the way back to the very disciples who were in that room with Jesus. I mean, we're reading this in a book called John. It's named after a guy named John who was one of the people sitting around this table who who wrote this down for us. So isn't that amazing? The, The night before Jesus dies, he looks into the future and he prays for you. And he prays for me and all of those who would follow after him in in future generations. Now, that's incredible in its own right, I think, but what specifically does Jesus pray for us in this moment? He goes on in verse 21. He says, I pray that they, remember they is us, right? I, I pray that they will be one, that they will be unified, that they will be people who resist the forces of division in this world. I pray that they will embrace diversity and that they will have their differences and disagreements as a result, but but that they will not let those harden into divisions. I pray that they will seek unity, not always uniformity, but, but unity. I pray that they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us. Why, Jesus? Why are you praying this in this climactic moment? He tells us, so that the world will believe. So that the world will believe that you sent me. Did you see what Jesus is doing here? He's praying for us the night before he goes to the cross. And he prays that we would be people who resist the forces of division and seek unity. Now we might say here, how in the world can we seek unity with people who are on the other side from us, with people we're opposed to? How can we seek unity with people that we think are harmful and wrong? How does that work? Well, the, the world probably can't do that because there's no categories for that. But, but here's what we know because Jesus has, has taught us this. We have a unity that we all share that we will always have, regardless of where we stand. Because one thing that Jesus taught us is that whether you are a Democrat or a Republican or a conservative or a progressive or pro-life or pro-choice or you name the hot-button issue, wherever you stand on any of that, you are a child of God. You are. All of us are children of God. Now, that's a beautiful thing, and oftentimes we think about that in terms of, well, I have this heavenly Father, and that's so great for me. But what it also means is that all of us have brothers 
and sisters and siblings in the family of God. And it means that as we're engaging socially, as we're engaging politically, when we come across somebody that we're opposed to, that we disagree with, that we're different from, that person on the other side is still my brother. That's my sister. That's my sibling. And that will always, always, always be true. And that's the ground of the unity that Jesus is calling us to seek. Can you imagine the difference it would make if every time before we turned on the news or pulled up the news app on our phone, we remembered this perspective, that everybody on the other side is part of the same family of God as us? Can you imagine the difference it would make if we thought about this before we posted stuff about politics on social media or commented on stuff? I think it would change our tone, right? It would change our perspective. And I think over time, people around us would start to notice, hey, they're different. They're doing this differently. They're treating people with love, whereas most people in the world would not be treating those folks with love. The world would not be indifferent because the world would see the difference that following Jesus makes. And this is exactly what happened in the early church. Some of you know this. Those early Christian communities, they had like zero political power. Like for the first at least 300 years of church history, almost no Christians even had the right to vote, much less hold public office. And yet what these Christians got together and and did was they said, we're going to strive to live together in the kind of unity that Jesus calls us to. And so you had these Christian communities where men and women were uh, relating together in ways that were scandalously egalitarian in that time. You had Christian communities where you had slave owners and slaves treating each other with love, rich people, poor people. And the church was just intentionally defying the divisive boundaries and barriers of the world around them. And you know what happened? The world around them saw these little groups of Christians and they thought, huh, that's new. That's different. And a lot of them said, I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. That might actually change the world. And that's how the Christian faith swept across the Roman Empire and beyond. And that's the legacy of the early church for us. And and the same thing can be just as true for us today if we defy the divisive boundaries and barriers that our world tries to impose upon us. And, And Jesus prays that we would strive for this because Jesus knows if we do this, the world will see the difference that Jesus makes. So as we wrap up this series, uh, here's what I hope that you'll take away from all of this. Be politically active. Be socially engaged. Seek justice in the world. That is a crucial part of our calling as the people of God. But as you do that, don't forget the how. Remember, remember that your posture, your tone, your approach also needs to reflect the love of Jesus. And if we can all do that, then we can be the people that Jesus prayed that we would be. And we can show this world the love of Jesus that it desperately needs to see. And we can show the world the difference that Jesus makes. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, we we live in a very divisive world. We, We live in a world that tells us we have to choose sides. We live in a world that tells us the people on the other side we have to be against. We cannot be unified with them. Thank you for showing us a better way. God, this is so hard. In the heat of the moment, we get so passionate, we get so worked up, we can forget that everybody involved in all of our disputes is our brother, our sister, our sibling. God, help us to keep that divine perspective because when we do, we know that we're embodying your love. We're showing the world a better way that it needs to, 
it needs to see. And God, we're showing the world the difference that following you makes. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.